Shalom and hello everyone from Jerusalem. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. Uh, we're so glad to have everyone back after the holiday break for our ICEJ weekly webinar. We thank everyone who's already joining us, those who will watch it over the weekend. It's just glad to have everyone back. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year, and we're off to a good start uh, here in the New Year. It's good to be back in Jerusalem, back in the office, and ready to uh, do our weekly webinars. We're starting off uh, this week with a Bible teaching by none other than our president, Dr. Jurgen Bueller. And I know he and uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Mormer Kalos, were going through the life of Abraham, looking at some of the Torah portions, the chapters in Genesis that talk about him. Uh, we're going to skip just a couple figures and go to the life of Joseph this week and look at some of the messianic motifs the imagery and, and foreshadowing of Messiah in the life of Joseph. We know there's a lot in, uh, in this, uh, of this nature in the life of King David. He's the one who's promised the Messiah from his bloodline. He was rejected by uh, his brothers. There's also a lot of uh, messianic motif in the life of Moses that we could explore. He was a great intercessor, a lawgiver, so many other things. But we're looking this week at the life of Joseph and messianic motifs that we can glean from Genesis. I think it's around chapters 37 up through uh, in the mid-40s, uh, the main events in the life of Joseph. So, Dr. Bueller, please. Yes, thank you so much, David. Can you all hear me? Welcome over all clear. Yes. It's a joy to, to start the new year with a, a very special webinar. We have been, like David shared with you, we have been going through the uh, life of Abraham through a number of the weekly Torah readings. And uh, today, in a way, um, this uh, today's teaching or discussions, I would like actually to have my colleague David also to uh, share some of his insights in the life of David and those passages. Um, today, actually, we are uh, combining three weekly Torah readings. It's quite amazing. The story of Joseph is, uh, besides the story of Abraham, the longest story in the book of Genesis. It goes starts in the chapter 36, and it goes, goes it concludes all the end in chapter 50 in the book of Genesis. And it is, like you said, it's not only, I believe, a motif, but in my eyes, it's one of the most powerful, maybe the most powerful description of the ministry of Yeshua um, as he accomplished it um, uh, until today. Of course, there will come a future uh, fulfillment in the ministry of Yeshua, his uh, royal reign, which we have to look much more to King David for that. But uh, if we look at the, the, the past history, of what Yeshua accomplished while he was here on earth and also over this last 2,000 years. Uh, the person of Joseph is uh, the person to look at. And uh, <clears throat> I want to start right in the beginning of uh, uh, this uh, passages, and we find this in uh, chapter 37 in the book of Genesis. And um, it starts like that, and, they, and Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, that's 
This is Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. And now verse 2. Now these are the generations of Jacob. And what you would expect now, you know, if you go through previous passages like that, you might expect, well, these are the generation of Jacob. Colon, now you see uh, maybe Jacob begot, begot his 12 sons, and these are the stories of them, and they begot this and that children. But it actually doesn't go in any genealogy or, or, or uh, generations table like we might expect. But actually, it starts telling the story of Jacob. And that's very of Joseph. And this is very similar that if, if you go in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 6, you have a very similar uh, situation. Actually, this, um, yes, Genesis chapter uh, chapter 6, where it says in verse 9, now these are the generations of Noah, Genesis 6, verse 9. And what follows now is not at all a list of genealogies and, and birth names of Noah, but what follows now is the story of Noah, how God speaks to him, how he's building his ark. And this Hebrew word that is used, these are the generations of Noah. It's the, the Hebrew word, toldot, toldot Noah, or toldot Yaakov. Uh, and this actually means much more than just the generations or a genealogy. You can say this is the legacy of Jacob, or this is the legacy of Noah. That's their impact of their life into human history. And that's how it starts now. This is the generations of the Toldot, Yaakov. And it starts in with two chapters that are following. Number one, a chapter that comes and introduces the person of Joseph. He was at that time the youngest son of, uh, um, of, of Jacob. Or I think he might have had already his youngest brother, uh, Benjamin, alive. And then if you go to the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 38, you come through to a very strange passage. And this is uh, the story of Judah and Tamar. And in a way, it says, this is the, this is the legacy of Jacob. And he says, there are actually two persons, two tribes that are peeking out in the legacy of Jacob. And this is number one, the tribe of Joseph. And number two, it's the tribe of Judah. And if you look in rabbinical literature, in the, in the Talmud, and the tractate Sanhedrin, you will find that there is a discussion between rabbis, and they are referring to a dual concept of Messiah. They say there is, number one, a Messiah ben David, this Messiah, the son of David. That's what we all are familiar with, because you have him introduced in many, many passages in the Gospels where the people call him Baruch Abab, uh, uh, Ben David, uh, son of David. They give him this messianic greeting. But then the rabbis say there is another type of Messiah, and this is Mashiach Ben Yosef, Messiah, the son of Joseph. And if you read this in the Tractate of Sanhedrin, this actually starts a, a, a dialogue. That, that's how the Talmud reports him. Another rabbi then asks, so who is this uh, Mashiach ben Yosef? And then he says, it's the Mashiach who will be killed by his brothers and will redeem through that his brother, brethren. And it's quite amazing that this concept is actually hidden even right there in the Talmud, that there is 
another model, another concept, another motive, you can say, of Messiah that actually speaks about a suffering Messiah that is uh, being pierced, that is being killed. And like Joseph, if you if you know the story very well, I, I believe you all know that he was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold by his brother. They actually wanted to kill him in the beginning. But the end product was not only the redemption of Israel, but the redemption of the whole world. So these two chapters, chapter 37 and chapter 38, they are introducing those two messianic lines. There's the house of Joseph, uh, Mashiach ben Yosef, and then it continues with the house of uh, Judah, which is the story of Judah and Tamar. And it's uh, before we go to Joseph, let me let me maybe just make one more comment on the on the life of Judah. Uh, of course, it's a very delicate story. We can say it's the story where Judah, Judah um, actually goes to a prostitute, which uh, he finds out later on. It's actually his daughter-in-law, and it's a long story. You can read it yourself at home. And this this woman, her name is Tamar. She brings forth a child, and uh, and it's actually twins that are in her in her in in her womb. And one of them breaks through with uh, with his hand through the womb, and the midwife puts a, a red scarlet uh, tape around, um, and the midwife puts a red scarlet uh, uh, line. I think it's around the foot of the uh, of the child. He withdraws his uh, limb, and then another son comes out, and. Uh, and and but he drew back his hand. It says here in, in Genesis chapter thirty-eight, verse twenty-nine. He drew back his hand. He drew back his hand. Chapter thirty-eight, verse twenty-nine. And the midwife said, "What a breach you had made for yourself!" And therefore, his name was called Peres. And Peres—that's the word for breach or for breakthrough. What a breakthrough you have made! And that's why his name was called Perez. Now, this name in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus, this name appears as the son of Judah. And the rabbis speak about this Perez. He says, this speaks, well, who is this Perez? And what does Perez speak about? So the rabbi give an explanation. They are quoting Micah chapter 2, verse 13. Micah chapter 2, verse 13. Let us quickly go to that. Micah chapter 2, verse 13. And he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going out by it, and the king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. And the rabbis say, Who is this, the one who breaks through, who has the name Paris? And the rabbis say, This is nobody else. This breakthrough man is the Messiah himself. So it's quite interesting. In chapter 37, chapter 38, you have two messianic concepts introduced. One is the Messiah, which is coming after the lineage of Judah. And the other one is the Messiah type that is present in the person of Joseph. Now, um, I'm not sure, David, if you want to add a few words to that, the story of Tamar and Judah, of course. That's a, a quite a, a complicated story. Yes, I, um, it's quite a, a complex little tale in one chapter, and it's strange that you start talking about Joseph, and the next following chapters are all about Joseph, and yet you get inserted this story of Judah. If you just take this one chapter, 
about the, the lineage of Judah, and you go over to the book of Ruth, and we remember we, um, I've seen a play on the book of Ruth, and you have this figure and that figure, Boaz, the mother Naomi, and this one, and a first kinsman redeemer and, and, and such. You could actually do a play uh, about this chapter 38 of Genesis about Judah and Tamar, and the same people almost dressed in the same costumes and playing sort of the same roles could play out the, the story of Esther in the same way, in the especially in the sense that there was a closer kinsman redeemer who didn't want to mess up their inheritance and someone else uh, uh, stepped in here. And this is all twice now, something like this. And the notion of the kinsman redeemer happens twice in the lineage of David uh, who was the, you know, you know, became the, bore the promise of a, the Messiah through him. So I'll just say that, and uh, it's an interesting thing. And um, uh, Joseph running from Potiphar's wife proves more moral, morally superior to Judah when you compare the two chapters. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, let me just make a few a comment on chapter 37. Uh, we are introduced here to the young Joseph. Jo chapter 37, verse 2, we read Joseph was 17 years old, so he was quite a young chap. And um, we, we read here now in verse 3, chapter 37, verse 3, we read here now, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. So, in a way, Joseph was the beloved son. I remember, I know you remember uh, the words that God Himself spoke when Jesus came out of the baptism of River Jordan. There was this quiet voice coming from heaven and said, This is my beloved son. And He gave him a robe of many colors. There could be much said about that. But then it says also in verse 4, but all his brothers hated him. And in, in many ways, this is uh, um, true for the life of Yeshua, that uh, like John chapter 1, it starts, he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. On the contrary, they hated him even unto death, and they wanted to kill him. And then Joseph has this amazing two dreams. It's the first time where he's confronted with two very similar dreams, and in a way, they speak about the same principle. In the first dream, we see this uh, 12 sheaves that are bowing to his sheep, uh, 11, he, uh, 12 including his own sheep, and then 11 sheaves are bowing to him. He was telling this uh, dream to his brothers, which probably was in a way very wise to tell his in the brothers because they got furious. They said, what do you want? They asked to bow down for your sheep. And then he had another dream, which is quite significant. It says here in verse 9, chapter 37 again. And then he dreamed another dream. And he told it to his brothers and he said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. The sun the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, there's only one passage in the Bible where a similar uh, sy symbolism is being used.
Yeah, no, I, I, so the, the image showing that dream about sun and moon and 12 stars, it appears once again in the Bible, and that's in Revelation chapter 20, 12, where uh, John the singer says this woman, which is uh, crowned with 12 stars, and the sun and the moon is, are standing about her, and there is this dragon beside her, beside this woman, which wants to devour the woman and the woman is bringing forth a male child. And, and now there are many interpretations of, of Revelation chapter 12. So say it's the Catholic Church or this and that system. But there's only one imagery in the Bible that uses exactly the same sequence. And that's here in Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph is dreaming about the 12 tribes of Israel represented in 12 tribes and the the patriarchal family in a way represented in the sun and in the moon. And uh, and what we see here in the book of Revelation is Israel that brings forth the world redeemer and as the, the, the devil, this old ancient snake, tries to destroy him. So it's a very powerful symbolism that he sees here. He shares this dream to his brothers. They again get jealous about him. And uh, and then it's quite interesting, they say later on, it's a, I encourage you all to read those passages at home, later on in chapter 37, they see him coming, visiting, visiting him as they are taking care of the sheep, it says, let's go now and kill him, because uh, then we, we shall see what will become of his dream, this is verse 20, 37 verse 20, where it says, Come now, let us kill him, and we will see what will become of his dream. And that reminds me so much of the last days, the last hours of Yeshua, when he's being taken to the cross, where they say, now crucify him. And then when people say, well, should we help him? Should we give him water? Say, well, let's see what comes out of his vision. He said he's going to rebuild the temple in three days. Let's see what will happen to that. And it's exactly a very similar situation here with Joseph. And of course, they are not killing him at the end. God intervenes. They are selling him for 20 shekels. That's uh, 37 or 28. They were selling him for 20 shekels to Ishmaelites. And of course, Yeshua was selling for 30 shekels uh, uh, to be handed over for his uh, crucifixion. And in a way, for Jacob, Joseph was now dead. They present him with a bloodstained garment, his uh, uh, many striped garment was filled, soaked in blood, returned back to his father Jacob, who says, Your son died. And for Jacob now, for the following years, he thought his son is dead for him. What happens now with Jacob, and we, we read this in verse 39, uh, chapter 39. I don't want to read uh, a passage from that, but. Uh, uh, Jacob, uh, Joseph goes through a very traumatic, you can say, career. He becomes a prisoner in the, first of all, a slave in the house of Potiphar, and then through some very sad circumstances where uh, the wife of Potiphar accuses him of some false uh, doing, which he never did, says this man tried to deceive him and to, to uh, sexually harass her, but uh, he never did that. And then he was sent because of that, not guilty at all, even to a worse situation from being a slave into the lowest part of the prison of Egypt. And then in all those places, the Lord was with him. And the, Lord, the Lord's hand was blessing him. 
um, he became the overseer of the prisoners. He was interpreting uh, then something dramatic is taking place. We read this in chapter 40. In chapter 40, uh, we read about again a pair of dreams, a double dream. This time is dreamed by Pharaoh, which is the chief, the, the, the most supreme ruler of the whole world, you could say. He was ruling over the world of Egypt. And there were two dreams that bothered him at night. He was waking up. We read this here in chapter 30, verses 4, verses 5, and the following. And he, he was, was dreaming about uh, number one, five, seven uh, very fat cows that were crashing at the River Nile. And uh, after that, he saw seven very meager, very thin, poor, poor cows emerging out of River Nile. And they were devouring those fat and beautiful cows. And it says, and there was no change in the visual appearance of those thin, uh, hunger-stricken cows. And, uh, and Pharaoh woke up, was very disturbed by that dream. And then he dreams the same dream again. He sees there are seven very uh, rich and very uh, full uh, sheaves of wheat that were growing. He said, there are, I never saw so beautiful sheaves of wheat in our, in our kingdom. And then again, he sees these seven very thin, dried out sheaves, and they are devouring the seven fat ones, and there is no change in their lives. And what, what he's very disturbed, he has this dream, he shares it with his uh, uh, cabinet and with his uh, magicians and with everybody. Nobody is able to give an explanation of the dream. And then one of the servants of Pharaoh says, I remember when I was listening, I somebody, a Hebrew slave, and he could interpret the dreams. As a matter of fact, he says he was inter interpreting one of my dreams and exactly what he said was happening. And Pharaoh is so desperate that nobody knows what he was dreaming and what the meaning is. He says, get that Hebrew's claims very quickly to me. So they dressed Joseph, they shaved him, they made him look like a representable Egyptian. They brought him before, before Pharaoh and um, Pharaoh was telling him that dreams and he was Joseph by the grace of God and the inside of the Holy Spirit. He was given to, to Pharaoh uh, uh, a rundown for the following 14 years. He says, what will happen in your land is the following. You will have seven very rich, luxurious years in Egypt. And this is represented by those seven rich sheaves of wheat and by those seven fat cows that you have seen. It will be years like you never had in your history. But those seven fat years, rich years, they will be um, followed by seven years of starvation where there will be no rain. And in a way, those seven years that were rich will uh, not be enough in order to feed you for this starvation, for this draw that will come over, over Egypt. And then he says, because you trend it twice, it's absolutely sure that this dream will come in fulfillment. God, God assured it twice for you. And it means that it, there is no discussion about it. And then uh, he gives the advice to Pharaoh and says, you know, if I would be you, what I would, would do, 
I would place somebody over the riches of uh, of Egypt, put him in charge of those seven years, let him gather all the wheat, all the riches together, and build up storehouses that will feed your nations for those seven years of drought when the whole nation will be in a disaster. And the Bible tells us uh, in chapter 31, 31, verse 37, Genesis chapter 41, verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. They all realized, well, somebody now has an understanding what our master was dreaming. And uh, Pharaoh said to his servant, can we find a man like him the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God showed you what is going to happen and he gave you wise counsel, now listen to that, he says, you shall be over my house and all my people. You shall order, my people shall order themselves according to your command. That means he puts the whole nation under the command of Joseph. Only in regard to the throne, I will be greater to you than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have given you over all the land of Egypt. And he took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And then he gave him his chariot. And he says he made him ride on his second chariot in the kingdom. And they called out before him, bow the knee that, that was set before him, that he set him before all the land of Egypt. Uh, moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. And this is one of the most powerful uh, imageries of Yeshua. You know, after he was sold for 30 uh, shekels, for 30 pieces of silver, and he went through the cross, and he went through three days being in the grave and resurrected the Bible. He was seated at the right hand at the Father. And Jesus says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. That means life within the life of Yeshua, life of Joseph, not a finger here on this earth is to be moved without the consent of Jesus. And Ephesians chapter 1 speaks about that. He set him on the right hand of the Father over all authority, over all power, over everything that is being named here in this world. That's where Yeshua is. Like Joseph was sitting uh, in front of the people of, of Egypt. Later on, um, Joseph even says to his father, Jacob, so, uh, Jake, Daddy, please come with me because Pharaoh made me like a god in Egypt. Since people had to bow down before him, they worshiped before him, and they recognized there was only one man that uh, at the end would give them food. And then, of course, we know the story. They had those seven years of plenty, the seven years of very generous harvests, Joseph was building out storehouses all across Egypt. And then it says at the end, and after those seven years of plenty, after Joseph was building all those storehouses, it says here that in verse 55, then all the land of Egypt was famished and the people of Israel cried to Pharaoh for bread. Now listen what Pharaoh said. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. 
And that's quite amazing. And this is exactly the authority that Yeshua said his father gave him. He says, there is no one who comes through the father except through me. The, the Pharaoh himself says, you go to him. He's the one who tells you what to do. And then the following is said. So when the famine spread all over the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in all the land of Egypt. Moreover, now listen to that. All the earth, the whole world came to Joseph, not to Egypt, to buy grain because the famine was severe all over the world. And here we have a situation of a Jewish former slave that rose to the second power in the kingdom of Egypt, and the whole world was coming to him in order to save their lives. And I don't think there is any better imagery of Yeshua, even for this present state, where wherever you are listening to us, I see there are people from Thailand, they'll see people from uh, Spanish-speaking or Latin America, you have French-speaking countries, Portuguese-speaking countries, many other countries. We all look for one person for the answer for our, for our questions, and that's how the wonderful song of Andrew Crouch, it says, Jesus is the answer, and uh, and he is the answer for the world today. Now, so far, this is a, I believe you can go in many, many more parallels how Joseph resembles the life of Yeshua. But then it says, and it's probably around after one, one and a half years, that this famine, the Bible says, also struck in the land of Canaan. And that means now the brothers of Joseph, you could say today the Jewish people, Israel, the remainder of the tribes of Israel, they also felt this hunger. And we read here in chapter 42, in chapter 42 uh, he says, Behold, I have heard, that's Jacob speaking, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go now and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. And he sends 10 of his uh, sons, uh, he keeps Benjamin back home, he's the youngest brother of Joseph, but the remaining 10 sons he sends to Egypt and they appear before Joseph. The Bible says here, um, I read here from verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land of Egypt. This is chapter 42, verse 6, Genesis chapter 42, verse 6. Joseph was governor over Egypt, and he was the one who sold all the people of the land. He sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed himself before him and their faces to the ground. And Joseph uh, saw his brother, recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. And it says later on in verse 8, that Joseph recognized his brother, but they did not recognize him. And then later on, uh, uh, it says here actually in, in, in chapter 20, 22 and 23, that Joseph didn't speak to them in their own language, but he spoke through an interpreter to them. Verse 23, they did not know that's the brother of Joseph. They did not know that Joseph understood them, or there was an interpreter between them. Now, I want you to take the following imagery here. Um, this is chapter 32, verse 23 and uh, 22. Yes, thank you so much for putting that up. 
Um, they now arrive in, in Egypt, and the person that they are encountering is their very own God. But they fail to recognize him, and the reason for that is so simple. Because when they looked at Joseph, their brother, he had no resemblance whatsoever with any one of the Hebrew family, Jacob. Joseph looked like an Egyptian, he walked like an Egyptian, and he talked like an Egyptian. They saw an Egyptian man standing there talking to an interpreter, and they had no idea that this is actually their own brother. And for me, this is one of the most powerful imagery that the church today and the people of Islam. And that's so true when the people of Israel today look at the church, it looks absolutely Gentile to them. They have, they have many people reject Christianity because there are so many traditions in Christianity that are so purely Gentile and nothing to do with Judaism. They wonder why do they build up a Christmas tree? Why don't they celebrate Sabbath? But Sunday, why are they why are they behaving like they are behaving? This has nothing to do with us. And like Joseph, the church appears very strange, very foreign, like another religion to them that some many rabbis even say it's idolatry to be a Christian. You stop being Jewish if you are part of that religion. And it's very similar to that. They would not recognize him for good reasons. Why he would be his brother. Now, again, there is a very long story now. I don't want, don't want to go into all the details, but the, they purchase now grain for them. They leave back uh, to, to Israel, to their father Jacob. They thought maybe this is just a short drought, but after one year, there was still no food in Canaan. The drought was going on for more years, and there was also drought in Canaan. And after the food that they brought back from Egypt, that they purchased from Joseph, was finished, Jacob sends them back again. And um, you will read it when you read it at home. Chase Joseph was keeping one of the sons, Simeon, uh, in a way as a, a captive there, as a, as a token, so to speak, to make sure they would come back. And, uh, and he says, you will get him only back and you can get, come back to me only when you bring me your youngest brother, Benjamin. And then the, when Jacob tells his brothers, he says, please go and buy food for me in Egypt. They say, no, we cannot do it unless we take Benjamin with us. Now there's a long argument between Jacob and the 12 brothers, this was 10 cents that they uh, that he tells them, I'm not willing to give you Benjamin. You robbed me already, it says, it's quite amazing. You robbed me already at one cent. So there must have been maybe a suspicion what was happening to this one cent, Joseph, and I'm not going to entrust you again another son of work. Of Rachel, my beloved wife. And after going back and forth, uh, he releases them with a very heavy heart. They return back to Pharaoh, to Joseph, and they bring their youngest son with him. And it says here that um, uh, it's quite interesting, and this is a, a main point that I want to take home, that I want to take home from you, is that when Joseph Encountered his ten brothers. Uh, it's very hard to ask you about protection class, but the emotional roller coaster might have been that Joseph was going through. He sees now after decades, those brothers again that sold him as a slave to Egypt. 
And for many of us, this would have been maybe time of revenge or whatever. But the Bible says now in the following chapters, seven times in these following chapters, Joseph started to cry. You read this the first time they come to him, they did not know that he understood them, or there was an interpreter by him. And then it says here in chapter 42, 27, 24, 42, 24. And then Joseph turned away from them and wept. That's the first time it was quite. Now they returned back from Egypt and they uh, they returned back from Cana and they bring now Benjamin back to them. And uh, and uh, it says here in chapter 43, verse 30, then Joseph hurried out. He was running out of the room for his compassion crew, warm for his brothers. And he saw the place that he wept. And then he entered his chamber and wept there. And he says he washed himself, controlled himself, went back to his brothers. And then if you go further on in chapter 45, verse 2, it says there, this is when he revealed himself for his brothers, he could not control himself anymore before those who stood before him. And he cried and said, make everybody go out from him. So no one stayed with him and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And it says again, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians even heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And later, later on in verse 24, excuse me, verse 14, chapter 45, verse 14, he falls under the, around the neck of his youngest brother, Benjamin, and he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And then we read later on in 46, he meets his father, father he wept. Uh, this is the sixth time he's weeping. And then we read one more time in chapter 50. When he has an encounter with his brothers again at the end of his life, life he was weeping again. Now, if you take this as an imagery of Yeshua, who became the savior of the whole world, the whole world comes to him to find salvation. And you will see at the end of the story, uh, he finally makes himself known to his brothers, telling them, I'm actually not an Egyptian. I'm one of yours. I'm your the younger brother Joseph, who you sold to Egypt, I became the redeemer of the world, and God sent me in order to become also a redeemer and a blessing for you, for my own people. And when all this was happening, there was an emotional heart cry of Joseph going on. And I believe this reflects the image for Yeshua that we need to understand that there is a deep, deep love for Yeshua for his people. And you see this love of Yeshua reflected even in the lives of his apostles. They are Paul in chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Paul says, I wish I would be even a curse for my brothers that they would see the salvation that I am seeing. And, uh, and it, it is a, a heart cry of Joseph where he constantly had to go back and leave again. It reminds me when Yeshua in Matthew chapter 23, standing on the Mount of Olives, and when he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would you have recognized the time of your visitation? But now your house, he said, will be left desolate. And, and in a way, I want to challenge you on this seminar also to, 
to search your own heart. What is your heart for the Jewish people? Are, are you able to shed a tear for the house of Jacob? Like Joseph was weeping, even over those who were selling him into slavery, who tried to kill him. The Bible tells us Joseph was weeping around for him. It means there is really a passion, a heart cry for Yeshua, for his own people. And he said, actually, you have sent me, you thought actually wicked for me, but actually God sent me into this diaspora among the Gentiles in order to be also a blessing for you. So there is Joseph crying for his brothers. And there's one more point that I would like to, to highlight here. We said here in chapter 45, he could not control himself. He started to cry that the whole household of Pharaoh heard it. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves here now is, how did Pharaoh react to this return, uh, the return of his twin brothers, or the 12, 11 brothers, and the reconciliation of the family? It's a very important question because there are many ways how Pharaoh could react. He could have said, well, this is a little bit of a strange situation because they are foreigners here, they are strangers. I'm not sure if you really want them. Maybe Joseph will get distracted from his task to direct the affairs of Egypt and to be the leader over, over our nation. Now listen to that. Uh, chapter 45, Genesis 45, verse 16. And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers returned, child brothers had returned. Now, let me tell you, there is a report today going all around the world that the house of Israel returned back to their homeland. They returned back to their own where they actually should be. The question is now how is the church reacting? How are the people of God reacting? And when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brother had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servant. It pleased Pharaoh and his servant. And then he, he reacted. He said to Joseph, the following was 18, take your father, take your house and your household, come to me, and I will give them the best of the land. He says it again in verse 20 later on. He says, have no concern for all your goods. Leave everything back in Canaan. I will take care for you. I will give you the best of all the land of Egypt. It is yours. And I believe in this very passage, we see a wonderful imagery how the church should react today on the homecoming of the Jewish people back to their homeland. That should be a rejoicing in the tents of the saints around the world. There should be shouts of joy and triumph. Yes, God is fulfilling his promises to his Jewish people. He's bringing them back home to their homeland. And there should be a re reaction of believers and churches around the world. They should say, yes, we are actually going to give them our best. We are giving the best possible gift that this nation has been taken care of, that the Jewish people can settle in their homeland that new immigrants can come back to this land. And also an amazing example for us of this secular, of the secular king that is watching the restoration of the family of Joseph. And it says here, at least not only Pharaoh, but the whole house of Pharaoh, everybody who was elected, they rejoiced. They said, well, praise God. 
they are coming back finally. The family is reunited. We are going to bless them with the best possible gift. And we are giving the best of the land of future. Now, David, I want to make one more point. There's so much more that we can speak about. Uh, Joseph, number one, we uh, one big lesson really is this weeping of Joseph over his brothers. And I really want to encourage you all to invite the Holy Spirit that he is touching your own heart to let you weep about the state of this heart and pray for the Jewish people and you have this passionate love for them. And then also you have the same second, same reaction like Pharaoh had. Uh, they reacted, says, I'm going to give my full support for this family restoration of Jewish people. I'm giving, I'm giving them my best. And then in verse 46, it's quite interesting that uh, Jacob now is returning back. Uh, not returning back. Jacob is now coming uh, to Egypt. He, they come with more than 70 souls. The whole house of Jacob is following. And is, uh, they are settling now in the, in the land of Egypt. And in chapter 47, we read how Joseph brings his father to Pharaoh. And this is such a, I encourage you to read that at home, a very solemn moment. Now, this is, you know, this patriarch, you could say, of a Bedouin tribe, somewhere in a small backyard country at the borders of Egypt. Egypt was this great uh, civilization already then, the pyramids were already standing. Many of the big monuments that he killed still can see today, they were already there. So Pharaoh was this powerful, incredible man of authority that was ruling over the whole world. And the Bible says, and Ch Joseph brought Jacob, his father, and he stood before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. It's quite amazing that this uh, simple patriarch, this shepherd who came from Canaan, is standing in front of that world leader and is blessing him. And this must have touched Pharaoh. We don't know of the impact. But he says, how old are you? Because there was something that resonated, I believe, in his heart. And then he gives this amazing answer. He says, the days of my sojourning have been 130 years, and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And he was looking back at that time. He saw family crises is going on. He settled in the land of Israel. He remembered the time when he was over. Uh, in with Laban serving for his uh, wives and for his family, being cheated so many times. He had a hard life, but in all this hardship, God changed his name and he called him Israel. And then it says, and Jacob blessed again Pharaoh, and Jacob went out of the blessings, uh, out of the presence of Pharaoh. Now, what is quite amazing that after Jacob now comes into the presence of Pharaoh and blessed him. Things are taking to take place in the whole land of Egypt. And I'm still struggling in the way on the interpretation of this chapter. But if you read chapter 47, verses 13 and the following, you read four steps how things changed in the land of Israel. It's immediately after, after Jacob walked out and blessed Pharaoh, the following took place. They gave all their money, 
It says in verse 14, and Joseph gathered all, all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for grain. And then it says, and that's the most the first the money was coming into the house of God. And then it says, when the money was all spent, they came to him and says, Give us food, we don't have any money before anymore. And Joseph said, This was the second step. They give your livestock, and I will I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. Now the Egyptians were selling now all their cows, their cattle, everything that they had in their farms in order to get food from Pharaoh. That was the second step. The third one was now when they gave all the the the, the livestock to, to Pharaoh. Then it says, we don't have any livestock anymore. What shall we do? We are still hungry. The trot is still going on. And it says, we are going to buy your land for food. And it says here in verse 20, and Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh and all, all the Egyptians sold their, feed, their, their, their fields. First, it was all the money, secondly, all the livestock. Thirdly, it was the land. And fourthly, he says, we gave everything to you. There's nothing left. When Joseph he says, I'm going to buy you as the servants. And it's quite a, you know, it's a controversial story because in a way, it is uh, not really representing the values of the Bible in so many ways. The Bible never encourages us to sell uh, life, uh, human life to somebody else for service. Uh, the Bible doesn't encourage in any way slavery. But I want to give you a spiritual interpretation of that. I believe that uh, we are living in the last days and this, we are witnessing today the house of Joseph coming back into their own property, into the house of Jacob coming back. We are returning back to this land. And also I believe that we will come to a time, it's quite interesting uh, when uh, how it is being described, I will say a, a, a one comment about it also. There will come a time like Joseph is revealing him to his brothers, where I believe here in this land the people will recognize this Jesus who we thought is a Gentile leader. He's actually one of us, and he has also something to say to us. There is very in, one interesting thing if you go back to chapter 40. Joseph, it says here in this, uh, could not control himself in Chapter 5, verse 1. And then he says to all those who were with him, he says, make everybody go out for me. So no one stood with him and Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And I believe there is a truth in that is that we are might be entering into a time where I believe God Jesus Himself is going to deal with this now. And I don't believe it will be there will be anybody in the room. It's a thing that God will have a very intimate encounter with his family. Where he will tell them he says it's actually you. And it's quite interesting that what Joseph here said, he says. All this Egyptian slaves, let them all go out of the room. This is now between me and my people. Many people, many uh, Bible teachers here in Israel, they say, when Jewish people come to the knowledge of Yeshua, it actually will be something just between Yeshua and the Egyptian The Lord might exclude from that experience all the Gentiles around the world. And I believe we are entering into that. Now, Paul says something very interesting in Romans 11, Romans 11, verse 12 and 15. He says, 
if there were exception of the Shua, if uh, God already salvation in the world, and you see this in the life of Joseph so powerfully, that the rejection of Joseph and his brother actually led to the salvation of the whole world. They all came to Joseph. Everybody did survive because there was this one man in Egypt. So the, the, the selling of this one brother uh, to the Gentiles for deliverance for the whole nation. Paul says, if, it, if the rejection already when such a great deliverance to, to mankind, how much more the acceptance will be. Now, there's only one passage in the Bible and one concept in the Bible, actually many passages speak about it, where slavery and selling yourself is something noble and something that is recommended, that is even encouraged and commanded by the, the Bible. And this is, for example, how Paul writes about his own lives. He says, and that's how he starts all his letters. He says, I... Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, slave doulos of God. He says, I actually don't belong to myself anymore. I belong to Yeshua. He owns me. I have no right over my life anymore, but I belong to God. And the outcome of that, when I was reading that passage that came to my mind, was Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Well, the end of day in heaven, you hear this cry, this cry. Now the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And Joseph recognized this brother and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Basically, everything that was to be possessed in Egypt went into this possession of Pharaoh. And, and the Bible says at the end of the day, this will happen. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our world. And it's quite interesting, the reaction, you could say, that the people now complained and started a revolution and says, this is an unjust rulership. Genesis chapter 47, verse 25, he says, the reaction of the people for giving their money, giving their possession, their land, and even their own life to Pharaoh, they said, you have saved our lives. May it be pleased to our Lord, we are servants from now on to Pharaoh. And I believe, you know, I want to interpret this uh, spiritually. I don't think this passage endorses in any way slavery or anything like that. The Bible actually celebrates personal possession and all that. But I believe it's a spiritual, a spiritual truth that is hidden in there. It's that there will be, I believe, when God is going to restore his people, like Paul says, how much more there will be a blessing released over the whole world. I believe we are going to see exciting times. Once the nation of Israel will come into the kingdom of God, um, the end result will be that the nations will say, you have saved our life, may it please our Lord, that we will be the servants of the God of Israel. And that's actually, you know, it's a very powerful, and there's so much more which could be said for that parallelism of the life of Joseph um, to um, uh, the life of Yeshua. And I hope you took some notes with that and you study it even further, but I believe it's something that really speaks about the time in which we are living in. And I believe it helps us also to understand what God is doing, not only with the nations of the world, but also that we are entering into the season. Uh, uh, like Joseph, Jesus will not be able to retain himself anymore, to withhold himself anymore, 
and so it's promised will recognize him and know this day come soon. Thank you, you getting it. Thank you, Jurgen, for all those uh, incredible insights into the life of Joseph and the pictures, the imagery of Messiah that we see, all very good and very powerful and things to go over. And uh, you, you uh, were heading into an area uh, there at the end that I really hadn't heard yet in struggling with, uh, you know, uh, Joseph actually demanding the, the money and then your livestock. And in the end, everyone has to enslave themselves to Pharaoh. And how do you wrestle with this? Uh, as New Testament believers. I, I'd add uh, just a couple points. Daniel chapter 7, the great vision of the ancient of days sitting on the throne, and one like the Son of Man uh, was presented before him. It says in Daniel 7, uh, 13 and 14, it says, and to him, the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And the Hebrew word there, it's it's a, a word, you know, slave or servant. It's a servanthood that is an act of worship to, to the one that you're serving. The, the same Hebrew word is used several times, interpreted worship. And that I think that's what you're trying to capture, that your heart serves the living God and who Pharaoh is like a, a symbol of this. And so we see it even in Daniel's vision of the Messiah and his eternal kingdom. I'd add uh, something from uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, I know there were two things that really came out in your story, the in your telling of the life of Joseph, uh, all the dreams he had, and then all the weeping. You know, it really stands out now when you start counting the number of times dreams are there and the number of times that he wept. And uh, it says in Psalms 80, verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who led Joseph. You'd think it might say uh, Jacob, but it says, You who led Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. How did God lead Joseph like a flock? By his dreams. And I think. Dreams are important in the life of a believer. Uh, I've had many dreams myself, and, and they have led me in important decisions and important directions in my life. But I know that, that you know, God can give us a dream. It's how we interpret it and how we use it that's really important and really trusting God for the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom that is contained within the dream, how to handle it, out, how to interpret it. But these played, uh, uh, e even when, um, you know, you, you pointed out a verse there where, where Joseph remembered his dreams about his brothers, and he sort of troubled him roughly at the first. But, uh, uh, you know, God does use uh, dreams and visions to lead his people. And they play an important role. And the third point uh, on the weeping, where you, you pointed out at the start of uh, chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself anymore. There came a point where this figure of Jesus, the Messiah, he came to a point, I cannot hide myself from my brothers anymore. I, I got to tell them. And he came to that point because in chapter 44, it was Judah, the brother Judah, who at first had saved his life. 
by saying, let's not kill him, let's put him in the pit, uh, intending to uh, uh, save him later. No, Judas said, let's sell him. But it, it was um, in the previous chapter 44, it, there's this picture of Judah leaning on Joseph and almost whispering to him, talking to him on behalf of his father and his brothers. And he says, my father this, my brothers, my younger brother, Benjamin. And then he starts saying, our father and our youngest brother. And our father in the Hebrew, it comes out, uh, Avenu, we say uh, Abraham, Avenu, Abraham, our father, even Christians can say this. It's an inclusive term where, where Judah, is, some rabbis, uh, Christian Bible scholars as well, I tend to think this way, that Judah had started to, to his eyes had started to open who this was, and he appealed to him. On, this, on behalf of his brothers, especially Benjamin, and on behalf of his father Judah, he appealed to Joseph uh, on the basis of our father, Jacob, as if he knew they had the same father, and our youngest brother, Benjamin. And uh, the, I think this is the point which Joseph started realizing the scales are coming off. It's time to reveal myself to them. Very powerful. And this is really uh, a, an important story that is very prophetic for our day as we see the growth of the Messianic body in, in Israel and around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And you see also in the life of Judah, I think we spoke about that also yesterday um, when we talked about this passage, you have on the one side Reuben who tries to intervene and he says, well, I give you, when he talked to Jacob, he said, I'm I give you my two brothers, uh, my two sons, as a, in a way, as a, as a down payment if, if, if Benjamin will not come back. And Judah actually says, I'm not going, it's not about his sons, but he says, I do my own life. I put it in on the, on the scale. You can take my life if I don't bring back Benjamin. Yeah. And in a way, that's the, the spirit of Messiah where he was willing to give himself. And I think that's also where we see here that uh, the lineage of Judah qualified themselves also for a messianic lineage where later on Jacob says, as well, uh, there will be a scepter, a ruler, a Shiloh coming out from Suda, Judah, and it will shall never depart from them. Yeah, it is interesting why the uh, the promise of the Messiah came through Judah, and I think that's an important moment where he said to his father, uh, it's not my sons that I'll offer, I will be a surety yes. that I'll bring Benjamin back to you. He offered his own life to guarantee it, and, uh, and I think this is uh, just part of the, the heart of, uh, within the Jewish people that uh, uh, Judah prevailed as the one with the birthright in the end and not Joseph. But yeah. uh, we, we uh, thank everyone for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed uh, this Bible teaching on our ICEJ weekly webinar.